So Jay, Mojo's back in the comics. In all his weird yellow glory. Uh, which reminds me... What's up? Did we ever actually work out Shatterstar and Longshot's relationship? Well, sure, yeah. Miles, that's old news. I don't know. I mean, last I remember, it was kind of messy. No, no, it's actually pretty straightforward. See, Shatterstar is Longshot's son. Okay, that follows. And Longshot is Shatterstar's clone. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 169 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And boy, do we ever have a show for you this week. Jay, we, we made some decisions in choosing this material. We did. Um, I would say also that Marvel made some decisions in producing this material. I mean... We made decisions in pairing these two stories, but I... Man. Man. Right? So, with this podcast, I mean, a lot of the stuff is a no-brainer as far as what to cover. Like, if it's in the main series, then of course we're going to cover it. If it's a really continuity-significant miniseries or one-shot, of course we're going to cover it. And then there's stuff that's sort of edge cases. I mean, like, the Excalibur specials, they're not exactly annuals, but they kind of are. They don't tie into the big crossovers, but still... And they're kind of delightful. And so forth. And there are, you know, one-shot annuals, New Mutants summer specials, picture books about the X-Men having a costume party, Cyclops phoning it in. So the main reason that we're covering what we are today, which is Excalibur, Weird War 3, and the New Mutants summer special, also known as A Mutant in Megalopolis, um, is that Weird War 3 is one of the Excalibur annuals. Traditionally, we've covered all of the annuals, except that one Dracula one that we still haven't done and need to do sometime. Yes. And the New Mutants summer special, I had a lot of fond memories of it from my childhood. I still have fond memories that I create as I read it today, but it turned out I remembered it kind of different. Okay, I vaguely remembered it, and mostly nothing I remembered could have prepared me for how much I loved it this time through. But we're going to get to that one second. Let's go to Weird War 3. All right, so this is Excalibur Weird War 3, which was one of our many semi-annuals of Excalibur. Not like they come out semi-annual, but it's like an annual, but not quite. Might have been not the best choice of words, but quasi-annual. There we go. This is written by Michael Higgins, who you may recall as Excalibur's sort of default fill-in writer, under whom the characters are kind of recognizable as themselves. Wait, he's the guy with Jerk Captain Britain, right? Uh, yes, exactly, who turned out to be, uh, was it Mastermind, I think? He was, and also Demon Druid, right? Uh, that was the Demon Druid story, yeah. So Higgins does some interesting stuff. Um, Pencils are at least one familiar name, but it's disguised. So we have Tom Morgan, who I don't know much about, but we also have Justin Time. Get it? Like, just in time? Because the book was running late. So they got Chris Wozniak, who's sort of Excalibur's default fill-in penciler, who also has characters that are kind of recognizable as themselves. Kind of, sort of. Now, normally, we don't really talk about inkers and colorists very much by name, but here I want to because their work is significant. It really contributes. We have Joe Rubenstein and Tom Morgan on inks, uh, and Brad Vansada and Joe Rosas on colors. And the colors in this I actually really dig. Just like the inks, they add so much texture and nuance and almost flavor to the whole proceedings, which when there's a penciler I'm not super big on, that's kind of cool. Now, this is generally in a style that I associate with the Marvel graphic novels, and there's a reason for that, which is that it is, in fact, technically Marvel graphic novel number 66. 
Right. Now, they weren't numbering the Marvel graphic novels by this point. You know, New Mutants was number four. Dazzler of the Movie was number 12. But it was the 66th one to come out according to the internet, which is never wrong about anything. Miles, I, I hate to break this to you. Don't rain on my parade. So, speaking of Marvel graphic novels... Miles, your parade is bad and full of Nazis. Oh, well, then I guess maybe you should rain on it, but but still. Yeah, it's a bad parade. It's a really bad parade. <laughs> I'm sorry about my terrible parade, Jay. And listeners, I'm I, sorry. I mean, I assume that you mean the internet by your parade. That's the, that's the terrible and full of Nazis. But. Well, pretty much that. But this parade did also teach me that in addition to the stuff we've covered before about the Marvel graphic novels, there was also a Neuromancer graphic novel that apparently I really need to read. I only just found out it existed. And not one, but two Roger Rabbit graphic novels. Marvel used to do all sorts of stuff you would never expect. Yeah, there was also Someplace Strange, which is um, was, I think, the first and Nascenti book I read. Uh, yeah, I love that one. I actually just sold a bunch of copies of that at the uh, Dark Horse booth at New York Comic Con, because uh, Dark Horse has a license to that one now. I love huh. that comic. It made me happy when somebody bought it. Interesting. So, yeah. Anyway, this story, um, this is a little bit more of a classic Excalibur lineup than we've seen in a long time. It is. Um, so this this story technically takes place right after the girls' school from Heck arc. So Kitty is back with the team, and we've actually just got, I think, the entire original Excalibur lineup. Captain Britain, Megan, Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Phoenix. Right, plus Lockheed and Widget. They're, they're hanging out there, too. Um, and where we start out, so it's funny you mentioned Nazis, Jay, which is not a sentence that I would say very often, but... On the very first page of this story, under a Nazi flag, a swastika flag, these newly imprisoned rich people get off of a train that they've been forced onto. They're horrified at having to mix with the super gross, disgusting poor people. And then they're shepherded into a furnace and very graphically burned alive. So that is certainly a way you could start a story. Yeah, so I have some big problems with some of this story and how it handles Nazi stuff and how it entirely erases things like racial persecution. It's weird. I mean, we've talked before about how we like the mutant metaphor best by far when it coexists with, you know, actual diversity and actual systemic oppression. And here it kind of doesn't. And I mean, we've seen Nazi stuff in Marvel a whole lot. That's often the case, including in the mutant books. I mean, this is Excalibur. Like, they fought Lightning Squad pretty early on in the run from a Nazi-run Earth, which will become quite relevant. Sometimes it's handled gracefully, other times eh, a little less so. Yeah, and that's that's the trouble with using an actual a group that actually perpetrated genocide as the main antagonists of a series that's largely built around metaphors. Okay, so better or worse than using Hydra, like Marvel's been doing recently? It's the same. Hydra's Nazis. Oh, well, there you go. Nice and easy. I've said this before, but someone is going to say, yeah, but someone said on Marvel said on Twitter or Tumblr that Hydra's not Nazis. And if you'd been following Captain America for the last 17 years in excruciating detail, you'd know that. So, um, first of all, if you have to go to great lengths to prove that some that a group is not Nazis, you have already lost that PR battle. That's quite true, I think. Yeah. And second... The majority of people familiar with the Marvel Universe at this point are familiar with it through the Marvel Cinematic Universe, A, and B, aren't deeply engrossed in the history of HYDRA. 
And so Hydra looks like Nazis and it sounds like Nazis and it's rooted very directly in, you know, Nazi Germany. And for all practical purposes in terms of who it looks like these characters are and who it looks like Marvel is promoting as the cool guys with the logo you should put on everything, yeah, no, they're fucking Nazis. Well, it's nice and straightforward in this story because the Nazis are just Nazis. Hydra is nowhere to be seen. Yay. Small favors, I guess. And in fact, the Nazis are nowhere to be seen in the next place the story takes us, which is to Excalibur's lighthouse in England, where a deafening scream and an agonized phoenix flare blossom from the lighthouse. And the way it's drawn is actually really cool. The phoenix flare is more fiery and physical than we usually see it. It's almost molten. And I think a lot of that credit goes to the inkers and the colorists in this issue. Yeah, man, you, 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 you're talking some smack about the art in here, but I gotta say, the way the phoenix force looks throughout this story is rad as hell. It is, yeah. I mean, the the way the pencils are handled uh, for individual character faces and builds, that weirds me out, but I really like basically everything else. So, the Phoenix Flare, of course, comes comes from Rachel, who is is sensing this this horror going on elsewhere. And the rest of Excalibur runs up to check on her. Now, Excalibur themselves are their normal selves, but when Kitty gets upstairs to Rachel, um, Rachel sees her as the version of Shadowcat from Lightning Squad, the ghost Shadowcat. Right, because in the Nazi Earth, which is, I believe, Earth 597 that Excalibur has encountered once before, Kitty is basically dead. She's almost No, literally... she is dead. She's literally a ghost. Right. She's and dead. It's, it's so sad and creepy, and even thinking about it here, even though it's barely touched on, still makes me sad. It's sad and it's creepy, and it's something that never comes up in this story. Like, there's a point where they're going to pretend to be Lightning Squad and she's just going to be her normal self and alive and the fact that she's Jewish is never going to come up or be an issue in it and it's really weird. Well, there is one scene that does definitely reference that, but we'll get to that later. So Rachel staunchly denies that anything's wrong, but she can no longer do that when a furious Alistair Stewart shows up at the lighthouse door. Um, he's dressed a bit more formally than usual and he informs them that he covered for them, but his neck is on the line and Excalibur has to go register as mutants like they said they would. So that's weird enough. What's much weirder is when he ends this angry rant with a Heil Hitler. So that's, that's never a good sign. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a really major problem. Uh, this, this is not Kansas, or if this is Kansas, this is bad Kansas. Elsewhere in Bad Kansas, a shadowy bald man tells his Nazi underlings to psychically execute more mutants so he can succeed in evolving humanity into the X-Man? Hey, look, it's evil Nazi Charles Xavier. Yeah, okay, so Charles Xavier straddles the line between good and evil relatively frequently. We've certainly been through that on this podcast, like, a lot. But I will give Charles Xavier one thing, with a very few exceptions, of which this is one, he is not a Nazi, and I respect him for that. That is, like, the lowest possible bar. I mean, this is Xavier. Like, you take what you can get, right? So here's a thing I find interesting. This Xavier walks. Right. I mean, it kind of makes sense that in a society that values what they see as physical and mental perfection, any guy who gets a degree of power whatsoever couldn't have anything that the Nazis would see as a defect. But again, that's never addressed directly. It's just sort of casually there in the background in ways that make me think that it wasn't deliberate. It was just because Xavier was walking in the comics at this point. And I... It just, I just, oh God, there's so much here that really bugs me and it's weird and it's terrible. And um, so this Xavier, by the way, is, 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 is super classic villainous. Uh, he, he, he 
soliloquizes about how he's soon going to take over for the few, for the foolish leader and and you know the world will be his and all of that and um when when suddenly there is a psychic attack and I love the way this is drawn. And again, the inking and the colors make it. It's got like these Sienkiewicz jagged zap lines and these almost flecks of blood in the colors that are just like colors themselves with no pencils around them. Kind of reminds me of Havkin Wolverine Meltdown. I love it. Now, we know what this is because we've been seeing the Phoenix flare up as as Rachel has psychic episodes as she feels people being killed. Xavier doesn't. He's He just sees it as, as a sort of massive psychic migraine and something being wrong. But that's not the only thing that's wrong, as it turns out. Because elsewhere, elsewhere, the Red Skull, you know, Nazi guy, Hydra guy, Nazi guy with a skull for a head. He was in New Mutants Forever, and boy howdy was that a strange story that I still haven't wrapped my brain around. Anyway, he and an aged and balding Adolf Hitler talk about— Who is in a wheelchair. Who is in a wheelchair. Talk about how Charles Xavier looked like he was going to help their cause, but now he's just fucked everything up. And I love the way this is portrayed. We get, like, no details. It kind of reminds me of of Celie or Zele in Neon Genesis Evangelion. Uh, What did uh, Harrison and Jesse used to say about that? Oh, what was it? Let's talk in vague and cryptic terms, even amongst ourselves. That also reminds me of Xenogears. Xenogears did that a lot, too. It's a giant robot thing, I guess. But, Uh, yeah. No, so Xavier, I want to go back to Xavier because I realized, I I just realized that Xavier in here is basically sinister. He's the guy who's like, yeah, Nazis, your science isn't weird enough for me, so I'm just going to take over and do my own thing. Right. I mean, he's not nearly as stylish as Mr. Sinister, but, you know. No one, no one is as stylish as Mr. Sinister, Miles. No one will ever be as glam as that evil, evil bastard. But, yeah, this, this, this Xavier is, like, he's worse than regular Xavier, which is just sort of depressing significantly worse in fact well anyway what this worse xavier knows is that he's gonna need allies in his power struggle against the red skull and adolf hitler so he reaches out to lightning squad like we said that's the nazi excalibur they don't have their own version of phoenix because she's unique in the multiverse sometimes from excalibur number nine and number ten you say his power struggle against the red skull and adolf hitler but i think it's important to say his attempts to usurp power from immediately below Adolf Hitler and Red Skull, because it's not like he's the resistance here. No, no, they're all assholes, and whichever one wins, it's probably not going to be a good time. They're all very bad people. Very bad people. Our podcast is taking a firmly anti-Nazi stance, by the way. So, the real Excalibur, which is to say Earth-616 is Excalibur, they venture outside of the lighthouse into a very, very angry mob who's talking about, like, lynching them and stuff. Because they're mutants. Now, I I take issue with your idea that the 616 Excalibur is the real Excalibur. They're simply the protagonist Excalibur. Okay, well, I mean, they're my favorite Excalibur. Are they my favorite Excalibur? I don't know. There are a lot of good ones out there. I don't know, man. I'm trying to think of who my favorite Excalibur might be. I do really like 616 Excalibur. Yeah, they're pretty great. Ooh, I I like the one where Megan is Captain Britain. That was a really cool one. I remember that. I really liked the gender-swapped version of Excalibur run by Margaret Thatcher a lot. I fundamentally dislike it by virtue of it having been run by Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, but it was like Margaret Thatcher at her most charming, which, again, you know, low bars and stuff, but still, I'll take it. Regardless, Excalibur does get out of the lighthouse, they do get through the angry mob, and they confront the prime minister at the time and her Nazi entourage— who are talking about how mutants are the real danger, 
not Nazis. Yeah, uh, they're wrong. Right? And here's the thing where I was saying that Kitty does uh, get enraged because of her own background. Even if it's not explicit, it seems clear to me. Kitty and Captain Britain are just furious and the others have to hold them back. I mean, Kitty's Jewish, obviously big anti-Nazi stance, and Captain Britain is all about England. And this is a corruption of everything that his ideals for England stand for. I mean, Megan's Romani. Yeah, that's true. She should be a little more upset. Although I guess her view of the world tends to come more through television, which sort of minimizes that whole thing. So maybe that's why she's not as worried. Yeah, but still, the point is there are so many reasons to be angry at Nazis. There are so many. So many reasons. And one of them is the, like, ridiculous sham of a trial they're put on after this. It's sort of Kafka-esque. I mean, they don't really know what for. Well, okay, they know basically what for, but the trial still super sucks. So Kitty accidentally refers to Excalibur as Lightning Squad, and she's horrified. She's concerned that the Nazi reality is starting to assert and overwrite itself, and it's weird and terrible. And at this point, it's decided by the Nazi powers that be that the thing to do is probably to send this this ragtag group of, of mutants to Muir Isle so that Moira McTaggart can take a look. And that's really bad. I mean, because basically, you're going to get one of two Moiras at this point. One of them is the Nazi Mora we saw early in Excalibur. That's bad news. The other one is the Mora as she currently appears in X-Men, which was also bad news because she, she's been taken over by the Shadow King. So they're kind of fucked either way. I gotta say, though, if I have to choose between evil sexy Moira and Nazi Moira, I will take evil sexy Moira, like, anytime. Sexiness is way better than Naziness, even if it's evil sexiness. Like, way better. I mean, the sexiness would be fine if it weren't evil. True, true. Sexiness is Moira's an adult. <laughs> well, what she also is, is the Reich Minister of Genetics in this reality. And she, I gotta say, is remarkably on brand. She has swastikas on her hat and lapel and belt. She's like the cable of Nazis with his excessive X logos. Is there a Nazi cable? I bet there's a Nazi cable somewhere. It's the Marvel Universe. There's an everything, everybody. Oh, she's also referred to as Herr Dr. McTaggart, which is weird because it should be Frau Dr. McTaggart, yeah? Eh, it should, but as we'll see in this episode and, spoiler, the next one, Marvel doesn't always get its German quite right. Eh, we should just cut him some slack. You don't say. Well, Rachel figures it out. Earth-616 and Earth-597, the main Marvel Universe and the Nazi Marvel Universe, have merged. This isn't one Moira or the other, this is both Moira McTaggart's. Wow, that feels weirdly topical to current events, considering <laughs> how long ago this was written. Kind of, right? Well, this Moira has a posse. She has Nazi X-Men called the Reichsmen, which I do have to give them some credit for having Reichsmen written in the exact same font as the X-Men logo. I mean, it's kind of terrible, but it also makes me giggle. It's kind of nonsensy. So who are these X-Men? These are an odd group. We've got Banshee, Storm... Havoc, Rogue, and Psylocke, and so something close to the Australia team. Um, you know, vaguely in that direction, yeah, plus Banshee. Banshee has a goatee here, but I like goateed Banshee a lot better when he's a headmaster instead of a Nazi. He's also got longer hair, but yeah, that's a thing. Um, Storm is... Storm is is altered somehow. I don't know if she's supposed to have been... if, if she's supposed to be very scarred or just otherwise further mutated or what she looks kind of scrawly the strong impression i got was that she had been tortured and or horribly burned and this is an example where i think not going into too much detail is effective because it makes sense 
Storm is not what the Nazis would see as, you know, a proper-looking, genetically proper person, and therefore she'd probably have a terrible, terrible time of it. And I think Kitty even comments about that as they all fight. Havoc. The main difference with Havoc, Havoc's hat is, is, Havoc basically looks the same as his 616 version, but somehow he has an even worse hat because the loops on it are now lightning bolts and it just really doesn't work. Well, and they go in, like, the same direction instead of being a different direction on either side to be symmetrical. I think they're supp- it's supposed to be, like, an SS kind of thing, and that's why they're that way, but it looks so bad. No, Alex. you know what it looks like? It looks like he left his headpiece somewhere and someone sat on it. Oh, he, he never got finished his— kind of bent. He never finished his degree, and he got turned into a Nazi, and his hat is even worse. Alex Summer's life is terrible. Rogue and Psylocke basically look like Rogue and Psylocke. Rogue has 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 big floof hair. It's pretty great. So Shadowcat is really sad because not only are Nazis everywhere, which is terrible, but this reminds her that the real X-Men are dead. And I object to this because this comes out after the Extinction Agenda where the X-Men were like all over the news. They were the biggest news story in the world. Has Excalibur been living under a rock? I mean, Megan loves TV. How would she not have seen something? Phoenix actually did see the X-Men in Deja Future Present. Like, what's going on here? This whole conceit of everyone thinking the X-Men is dead has long since overstayed its welcome. Long since. The X-Men have really poor communication skills, and so do the members of Excalibur. But no, it makes absolutely no sense at this point. It's ridiculous. It, it should not be there, and, and it's, it, there's a point after which that degree of disbelief can no longer be suspended, and it's just silly. Well, thankfully, that'll be resolved in the main Excalibur series pretty soon. But for now, Excalibur beats up the Nazi X-Men, which is very satisfying. So Moira tells those Nazi X-Men to take five and explains a little bit of what's going on to Excalibur. About the merged worlds and the fact that she's basically got good Moira's brain and evil Moira's body. And so she hands them the Lightning Squad uniforms and says, here, put these on, you'll blend in better. Um, and and then go do hero stuff, I guess. There isn't a lot of logical causality in this story, but there is a really creepy part next. Oh, my God. Right, because we see a little bit about what evil Nazi Xavier has been up to as the Red Skull shows up at his lab and Xavier shows the skull around and, oh, boy. Now, Xavier has said already that Lightning Squad and the Reichsmen are mutants who are loyal to him because he experimented on them, but then freed them without killing them. And here we see what happens to the less lucky mutants. Who coincidentally are the O5. We see Cyclops restrained upside down with energy coming out of his eyes, being siphoned into a big machine. And Xavier mentions that this guy had stayed hidden by hiding his powers with Ruby Quartz glasses. He was even starting to form a resistance, but then they found him. Aw, he was forming a resistance, though. That's my Cyclops. Hell yeah. Um, Angel, Angel is, uh, Angel is dead. In fact, what we see of Angel is his skeleton on display. And the dialogue here is just troubling, as Xavier mentions to the skull. Unfortunately, his remains provide us with little that we could not ascertain by exploring the functions of a bird. This Xavier just doesn't see people as people. I mean, that's kind of sometimes true of 616 Xavier, too, but at least he doesn't usually flay them. Right, which he has done to Beast. Beast is skinned on a slab, and Iceman's loyalty is being tested because Xavier is forcing him to vivisect Polaris using an ice scalpel coming out of his finger. So 
I've mentioned that the pencils don't really do it for me here, and the art style does take me a little bit out of this, but this content is so fucked up. Doesn't The art doesn't even matter. The concepts are genuinely troubling, and like, reading this, I was actually getting really uncomfortable and kind of agitated and genuinely upset. Aw, oh, buddy. You know who this Xavier reminds me of? Who? The Xavier in X-Men Noir. I haven't actually read X-Men Noir. How is it? It's, um, it's interesting. Well, I'm sure we'll get to it at some point. There are, it is not my, it is not my favorite of the Marvel Noir series by a fairly wide margin, but it's got a lot of fun Easter egg points and some kind of amazing panels. Nice. I, I mostly look forward to it. And a very evil Xavier. Well, that's four of the O5. What about the other one? Okay, so Jean is in a tank, and she is alive technically, and she's being kept there because, as Xavier tells us through thought bubbles, she spurned his advances. No, no, Weird War 3, do not bring that plot point back. I don't care how evil your Xavier is. The whole thing where he was in love with Jean or in lust with Jean, just, just never mention it again. That didn't contribute anything. Let's just make that plot point go away. No, I think it's acceptable to have in this context, but only this context. I guess. Well, the Skull, after taking this incredibly macabre tour, takes Xavier to meet with, uh, you know, Hitler. And Xavier is super not impressed. Right. He's saying that his day has come, and this wheelchair-bound, one-armed aged Hitler is now irrelevant. So, Red Skull offers to use his super science, TM, to revitalize Hitler so he can better face Xavier. Did we mention that this story is very odd? Yeah, it's very scattered, too. And the implication here, and, and Red Skull talks about how successful his experiments were and how they turned him into a young man at the peak of health. Only his face is literally a skull. Like, he's not, this isn't, this isn't really what I think of when I think of, like, the peak of health or the ideal state of humanity. I mean, maybe he's cool with it. It's all relative. You remember that one guy who was getting all that surgery to look more like a lizard? Maybe it's something like that. Okay, maybe maybe that's just his thing. Right. It turns out he wasn't disfigured at all. He just got some surgery to look at a sweet skull head. Huh. Yeah, basically that. Well, you remember how Excalibur dressed up as the Lightning Squad? That wasn't just for some incredibly questionable cosplay. They are now sneaking into Nazi Xavier's base using one of Nightcrawler's now-enhanced teleports. Because... It's Kurt's mind from Earth-616, but it's Nazi Kurt's body, and Nazi Kurt never had his teleportation powers messed up in the Mutant Massacre. By the same token, Nazi Kitty, although, wait, Kitty has the body of Nazi Universe Kitty, but not as a ghost, just as herself normally without having had her powers screwed up. That makes no sense. Jay, this is what we like to refer to in the biz as a plot hole, and it's really best just to jump over that hole with a little bit of narration like that one time the X-Men fought the Avengers in the Silver Age and continue on. That was a board. Well, no, she she put a board down. I guess she didn't jump over it. Yeah, she used she, Jean used her telekinesis to put a board down over that hole. She didn't jump over it. Nonetheless, my example was apt, so let's put a board down over this plot hole and continue. It's good to be precise about these kinds of things, buddy. It is. Well... Rachel is staying behind as their sort of telepathic Aleph, uh, global frequency style, since there's no version of her in Lightning Squad. The rest go to talk to Nazi Xavier, who is, of course, a horrible douchebag. Unfortunately, what they also forgot is he's a very powerful telepath and can hear them think their judgments at him, so he psychically whammies the living crap out of them. It's unfortunate. Except for Kitty, who is protected by her bond with Rachel. How do you forget that Charles Xavier's a telepath? 
Uh, maybe like that's his thing other than being a self-righteous jerk. Excalibur is just getting very excited about this big adventure and forgetting incredibly relevant details. Maybe that's how they don't know that the X-Men are alive. Maybe they don't have object permanence. Oh, okay. Excalibur is just incredibly oblivious. I mean, they have taken a lot of blows to the head. These things can happen. Yeah, I like this theory. I like this theory, and I'm proud to be a part of it. Most excellent. So elsewhere, as this fight is going on, the Red Skull is using his Nullitron, which is a pretty cool name for a machine, I gotta say, to re-energize and de-age Hitler by draining the energy of mutant prisoners who are being burned alive. So that's pretty fucked up and troubling, especially because the art is incredibly graphic, and I gotta say, if it were more realistic, this would be basically unbearable. Yeah, I, again, have trouble with the casualness with which these motifs and this specific imagery is used. This is this story bugs me a lot and it's ridiculous and there are places where it's sort of fun. But I yeah, I don't like it and I, I don't think it's really. Yeah, it, it's just real inappropriate in a lot of ways. It is. And yet here we are covering it. So let us continue in our potentially noble endeavor. And Red Skull, as he is sciencing at Hitler, um, monologues about how no conscious entity can stand against the Nullitron. None. Absolutely no entities at all could stand against this, even theoretically, none that could possibly, possibly, possibly exist, which is, of course, our cue for a Phoenix Flare. Right, the Phoenix Force flares up larger and larger, and is colored black for some reason, in the sky. And then, like, many other flame raptors merge together? Or is that from the people who are getting burned? This part is very unclear. I read it multiple times, and I still don't know what's happening here. I know exactly what's happening here. What's that? The Phoenix is defeating Adolf Hitler with the power of gayness. You know, that could very well be the case, because it fires a big goddamn rainbow out of its phoenix raptor chest into all of Excalibur, who then filtered out through their own heads and mind-blast Xavier and the Red Skull from afar until their minds are erased. That... Let's just repeat that again. The black mega phoenix in the sky shoots out a rainbow that goes through Excalibur's heads and they mind-blast Xavier and the Red Skull to death. This plot does things. It just it just does things. No, see, this is not explained, and so I choose to headcanon it as Rachel Summers saves the day with the pure, raw power of how fucking queer she is. It could also be a really weird Care Bear stare, but I think your theory's probably a better one. I like so, my theory better. So with Red Skull, you know, mindless now, nobody can control the machine, and Hitler de-ages into a zygote and vanishes. Also, we all know that Havoc's the X-Men with the Care Bear powers. Oh, yeah, well, that is perhaps a valid point. Now, what happens next is strange, and I say that fully understanding what we just described. Um, Shay, would you like to do the honors? Okay, so, so once Phoenix has defeated the Nazis with the power of gayness, and Hitler has de-aged to a zygote, a flame phoenix bursts out of Xavier's mindless body, and Xavier grows and glows and ascends into a pastels on black background painting um, of, of basically giant cosmic nude Nazi space Xavier. Right. It's like a black velvet painting of a gigantic naked bald man with enormous eyebrows who's covered in fire and in space. I was going to say I kind of want that black velvet painting, but I really actually don't. I would just, okay, you know the problem here? It's even more focus on Charles Xavier's crotch. We keep coming back to Charles Xavier's crotch. Why is this happening? <clears throat> That's what Laundra said. 
<laughs> it totally is. So after that plot event unfolds, the two Earths, Nazi Earth and regular Earth, unmerge, the planets physically de-overlap in the art, and Rachel explains. Kind of... Okay, her explanation literally starts with the phrase, <clears throat> and I quote, In some inexplicable fashion. And then she continues. An incredible source of psychic energies from beyond. Used the Phoenix Force to merge the world. So basically what she just said is some really cosmic stuff happened, and I'm not going to give any details, but I'm going to pretend I know what I'm talking about. Hand waves, Phoenix stuff, and then the mutant energy Evil Xavier released all coalesced in space into a single mega-consciousness, which took over Z Xavier and became the X-Man, the next evolutionary stage he was trying to create, which turned out to be a giant naked bald, man bald Nazi in space. You know, sometimes you just have to look at a comic and you have to see where its plot goes, and you just have to say, huh, okay. So, in the spirit of that, huh, okay. So Alistair comes by and they're all worried, but it's okay. It's regular 616 Alistair and he's just there to work on a project with Kitty and they all laugh and everyone's happy. And then it turns out they're all really comforted to know that now Earth 597 has its savior, which is to say giant naked Nazi space Xavier. Right, there's like this image of a golden version of the big eyebrowed space Xavier watching over the planet itself. And like, this is our happy ending. Is it a happy ending? Is it a sad ending? I have no idea. And that is Excalibur Weird War 3. It surely is. <laughs> so here's the great thing about Excalibur Weird War 3. It is the more straightforward and lucid of the two stories we're talking about today. That's right, because we are also covering the New Mutant Summer Special, A Mutant in Megalopolis, by Anne Nascenti and Brett Blevins. Oh man. So, we've talked about Nascenti's comics before. You know, she, she did Longshot, she did Beauty and the Beast, she's done a couple other one-shots um, that, that we've looked at specifically in the X-Books. She did a huge run on Daredevil, she's done a, a ton of other stuff. Um, but, never before have we seen her go full Nascenti. I think that's what it is, yeah. Boy, howdy. Okay, so there was a quote that I found from an interview, and I kind of want to just go through that, the question and her response to it, because I think it's a good preface to this entire issue. All right, so so what was the question? So this was from an interview at manwithoutfear.com. A dude named Richard Meyer asked, did you ever get in trouble for being such a liberal? Uh, to which Nascenti's response was, I remember after a Captain America story, we got a letter that said, get the commie off the book. We had a big laugh about that one. Luckily, I had an enlightened editor, Ralph Macchio, so while we had lots of fun conversation about the issues, he off and he often disagreed with my politics, he let me do what I wanted. He was an extremely supportive and intelligent editor. I also remember once I wrote a New Mutants story about media conglomerates, and the higher powers at Marvel got wind of it before it went to press and cut the print run, uncomfortable with the fact that they were the very thing I was critiquing. So the story was suppressed and not seen by many, but I did get a wonderful letter from Noam Chomsky, the great writer and guru of media analysis, so I was thrilled. But we got the 5,000 brown M&Ms and Ozzy went on stage and put on a great show. So, Noam Chomsky likes this comic, and so as a matter of fact do I. It is Anne Nascenti and Brett Blevins at their at respective peak Nascenti and Blevins, and it is glorious and also utterly fucking bonkers this is this is like it's 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 like hunter s thompson's phantom tollbooth 
God, it really is. And I mean, it's just Nascenti saying, I want to talk about media theory. And so I'm just going to have a story that's basically that where things just kind of happen. And I'm going to use pre-existing characters, but they really just exist in service to the ideas I'm discussing. So we're actually, I think we should start by talking about the B-plot because the B-plot is actually really straightforward. Um, This is happening in the background of everything else. It's a group of kids who stage a protest to get a corporation to clean up a polluted stream in the woods behind the Xavier School. Um, These kids are great. They are, they are, you know, a gang of local children, as one frequently sees in in Nascenti comics. They're all over Daredevil, too. And these might be some of the same kids who've who've shown up in Daredevil, in fact, I think. I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. Um, I I do not remember them as individuals nearly so much as I remember them as kind of a, a collective scrappy unit. But... Anyway, these kids are great, and they all put on their swimsuits, and they decide they're going to sit in the stream and not leave it until it gets fixed up. And it gets the attention of, of, of local media. The kids, by the way, refer to themselves as the Wobblies sneaker gang, specifically after the IWW, which is really delightful. Um, and they are going to use news and the media as a tool for good. Ultimately, this catches the, the attention of the, the company that's polluting the stream who decide that the negative press and the pressure are just too much and they're going to clean things up. The kids succeed. It's awesome. And that's what this whole story is about, which is how politics and social issues and individuals and everything interact with the media and with the way the media impacts public and private consciousness. It's actually a brilliant crash course in media theory, but I gotta say, taking something that would normally be a full college course and turning it into, like, a New Mutant special edition is a bizarre decision. It's a quick introduction. Um, and Blevins' style, I should say here, by the way, is really, really politically cartoony. Um, he's he's very obviously drawing a lot from that, a lot from underground comics. Um, in, in a lot of ways, you know, I, I mentioned Hunter S. Thompson's Phantom Tollbooth, and that's partly because this this version of Blevins, somewhat like Inferno Blevins, comes across like a more wide-eyed and cartoony Ralph Steadman. I gotta say, though, I think this may be some of my very favorite Brett Blevins' work. Like, it feels like he's just himself so much, even if he is channeling this other... Oh, unquestionably. Blevins is absolutely and consistently at his best when he gets to build big, weird worlds and when he really, really gets to play with that stuff. Um, Again, his work on Inferno is just stunning. He's the standout artist of that crossover. And here... Here he's he's just I, I he's he's taking it to a whole other level. It's spectacular, and I've mentioned before that I I'd love to see animation based on Blevins's work, and this this really emphasized that. So I'm not actually going to attempt to directly summarize the a plot. I would just like to take a moment for li- to list for you in no particular order several things that occur during it. Warlock's TV addiction leads him to stag an extraterrestrial visitor from orbit. Wolfspin rents several children and then returns them. Boom Boom kisses an anthropomorphic personification of communism. George H.W. Bush kisses a football and throws a baby. Warlock pantses the media as a whole. Right, because what happens in this story is that Warlock, uh, his TV addiction makes him snag this extraterrestrial visitor who it turns out is from this place called Megalopolis, which is like an entire dimension slash world slash city slash whatever based on the media, like our world, but more so. Now, it's populated by anthropomorphic personifications of political powers, social powers, and media concepts, so 
things like situational ethics and manufactured consent are embodied in this place. And again, it's it's really Phantom Tollbooth, except more so, much more so, <laughs> Nascentier. It, it's Nascentier. This, I, I gotta say, Nascentier, would it be Nascentier or Nascenti-ish, the adjectival form of Anne Nascenti's last name? I don't know, but they have to work their way to the Nascenter of this country, which is, 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 um a megalopolis called megalopolis which has been having media spills that have been covered up and there are issues with the sponsors and there are big fights and they basically pull the plug on the entire operation and the thing is this is a difficult comic to just discuss in text because its value and its appeal is largely as both a pretty brutal satire and also just stunning madcap use of the medium yeah i mean we mentioned blevins as his strongest here and part of that is that the new mutants they're they're elastic in the way that cartoon characters are like they keep getting distorted and electrocuted and stretched and squished as reality just alters itself to demonstrate these media theory concepts that Anne senti is just sort of yelling excitedly at us also, Blevins gets to draw a ton of Boom Boom making faces, which is just sort of his amazing golden zone. Oh, right. There's this one part near the beginning when Rain is talking about how sad it is that, you know, the river's polluted and the government doesn't take care of stuff like that, just the stuff that's more of a spectacle. And Boom Boom is only half paying attention, and there's like a fly buzzing around in front of her, which she then blows up with a tiny time bomb. But just watching her, like, cross her eyes and purse her lips and raise her eyebrows as the fly moves to different places is delightful. I could I could look at a million Brett Blevins drawings of Boom Boom being Boom Boom. Yeah, I would unquestionably read a comic that was just 22 pages of of like nine panel grid Brett Blevins close ups of Boom Boom's facial expressions. This is especially exciting because this is an era when in the regular New Mutants comic, Cable had taken over, they were starting to become a paramilitary organization. Here we actually don't have Cable, or Cannonball or Richter for some reason. We just have Boom Boom, Wolfsbane, Warlock, and Sunspot. And so getting them to look like the old Blevins-era versions of themselves, right as New Mutants was turning into something very different, like, the characters may not really need to be in this story since they're just vehicles for Nascenti's ideas— but it's still quite cathartic and satisfying. The thing is, I think they do need to be in this story because while they're vehicles for Nascenti's ideas, they're really well situated to be that. You've got Warlock. So this this must take, take place then before Extinction Agenda. So you've got Warlock, who is, is the sort of semi-omniscient, or at least the capacity for for omni-media absorption, who can watch every channel at once and get obsessed with it, and who's also an outsider looking in on, on the culture, which I think is, is pertinent here. We've got Rain, who's got, you know, who's who's obsessed with the idea of being cool and being pretty, but also deeply questions them at the same time. We've got Boom Boom, who's just shallow as hell, um, or at least wants to present herself as, stu- as, as such. And we've got Sunspot, who's just kind of along for the ride. 
I don't know. I mean, for me, Sunspot's sense of simplistic heroism and willingness to go in fist swinging if there's a problem in front of him does also, I think, present a pretty compelling example of one way that the Western world interacts with what the media presents them with. They try to oversimplify it. They try to use that sort of gung-ho, macho feel that was especially prevalent, you know, during the era in which this comic came out in a different way than it is today. So for me, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think all four of them have a spot that makes them really work. In addition to Rain Sinclair's genuine compassion that shines through all of the shallower aspects of her personality because it's more her, you know? Yeah, yeah. And she is both of those things, and she always is going to be both those things, and that's what I really like. And again, you know, Boom Boom is also really superficial, but also a really good person. Okay. And that's always going to end up breaking through, too. So talking about some of the specific characters, I do want to talk about a couple things that happen in this, as much as it is just like a tour through media theory land. Um, you mentioned that Rain Renson returns children. So, yeah. Yes. She gets all made up and prettified by somebody, and she ends up um, in this stereotypical family, but it's all just faceless robots with, like, human face masks put on them, both her husband and their children, and they're on this sort of soundstage in the middle of a bunch of poverty all around them that they're ignoring because now they have recycled art they just got. Like, it's this brilliant social satire of late 80s armchair liberalism, and Nesenti is just, I don't know, she really does have a habit, as much as her work can be totally preachy, of just distilling it right down. Like, you mentioned the political cartoon thing earlier, and, mm-hmm. and that's totally what this is. Yeah, it's biting, and it's fun, and it's interesting. And I think, I mean, again, I, I think sometimes, like, Nesenti never tries to sneak political ideology into her stories like it's just there it's right there it's front and center there's no question of you know what what the perspective is which honestly is my preference if it's going to be in stories at least to some extent because and that can be fun too like so when we see the creature the personification of mutually assured destruction the idea that if you have enough nukes and your opponent has enough nukes nobody can actually use them it's this two-headed giant one head is uncle sam and one is a russian bear and they're punching each other and nukes are flying everywhere out of them and demolishing the countryside around them like it's oversimplified it's in your face but it's also a really cool clever image it is it is very 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 straight out of political cartoons I mean, even the way the images are captioned kind of are. And it's it's very Mojoverse. It's very Mojoverse to the extent that I had actually remembered the story taking place in the Mojoverse, which it does not. Right. And I mean, I don't know. Nascenti could have done that, but I'm glad she didn't. I'm glad she just put this in its own little pocket reality, because then you don't have to worry about continuity. You can just look at what's going on and just take it all in. Yeah, and it's it's worth a read, even if these aren't your politics. Um. First of all, it's a very good crash course in a couple really important media literacy concepts. So things like situational ethics and manufactured consent are great to know about in general. Like being able to interact thoughtfully with media and especially with what purports to be news media, no matter what your base values and beliefs are, is a really, really good, really powerful, really important skill to have. Oh, yeah. And I got to say, we were talking earlier about how normally this is a full college course. You know, as an intro, you could do a lot worse than this issue. I mean, this is something you'd have as a supplemental reading in a course like this. It doesn't do a lot of contextualizing. It doesn't do a great job grounding the concepts. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not there to be a lesson, but it's a good jumping off point and it's a good 
way to get familiar with a couple kind of critical terms and concepts. I would absolutely not present it as a primer on media literacy. That's that's not what it is. It's sort of like how you start with Wikipedia, you look at the citations, and that's where the meat of it actually is. I mean, ideally. <laughs> ideally, true. So, those are the stories for this week. We have a bunch of Nazi stuff and with a naked Xavier, and we have media literacy concepts personified in creatures that the New Mutants get to wander by and say, huh, and then occasionally punch. Marvel Comics is certainly full of things. And with that, you've got questions. Kia Lundy asks on Tumblr, I haven't purchased comics in a long time for long story reasons, but I want to dive back in. However, I'm also trying to be more socially conscious and I want to support writing that does the same. Where should an ex and Runaways fan put their dollars these days? I mean, Runaways is kind of the obvious answer here. There's there's a current Runaway series. I think it's, it's two issues in. Um, it's really good. It's really fun. I highly recommend it. Breaking down... The things that appealed to me about Runaways the first time, I would also definitely recommend Ms. Marvel. Oh, yeah. And I would recommend um, the the comic series Bad Machinery. I've never read Bad Machinery. Which is not a Marvel comic. It's not a superhero comic. Oh, my God. It's so good, Miles. It's so utterly brilliant and weird and amazing. I should totally read that. So within the X line, I think your best bets are probably going to be Generation X, X-Men Blue, and Jean Grey. I would also definitely add in Iceman. Iceman addresses a lot of social issues head on, and I think quite well. Ooh, yeah, good point. It's oh. not an ensemble book, though, which is what I've been trying to air closer towards. I guess Jean Grey isn't either. Yeah. But um, just based on based on what uh, Kielandi said about their their tastes and preferences, that's that's sort of the direction I've been trying to lean with recommendations. I would also throw in for Marvel the unbeatable Squirrel Girl. It is wonderful and it's actually incredibly progressive, but in a sort of stealth, of course, this is the way we look at the world way. It's also one of the funniest comics, if not the funniest comic I've ever, ever read. Um, also highly recommend The Backstagers, which I believe is from Boom. Oh, yeah, that's really good. And yeah. um, if you're looking for socially conscious comics, I mean, Bitch Planet by Kelly Sue DeConnick that I believe Image is putting out right now. It's an excellent comic, even if it can sometimes be extremely challenging to read. And if you've got suggestions, listeners, please stick them in the comments on um, this this episode, because we would we would love to hear more. Geek Haven asks on Tumblr, what are your thoughts on The Gifted and the New Mutants trailer? Okay, so excellent question. These are things I've been thinking very much about. So I'm only two episodes into The Gifted, which for those unaware is the X-Men related TV show that uh, came out recently. But I gotta say, I really dig it. I wasn't sold at first, but the second episode, I think, is what really hooked me. It's a perspective we don't often see, just how much life would suck for mutants who don't end up on a super team. And so I think it's a good call to have this be a version of X-Men continuity, where the X-Men and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants have just sort of vanished. Maybe in a way that makes it in the same timeline as Logan? Eh, who knows, hard to say. Maybe it'll be clearer later in the series. It does seem very, very television in a lot of ways. Like, some of the dialogue is just, boy howdy, I am sure watching a TV show. But what makes it work for me is that it seems to really get the metaphor and has modernized it pretty well. You know, we started with the X-Men metaphor being mostly civil rights struggle-related, then somewhat gay rights-related, and the way The Gifted is handling it, it seems very much to be about anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant sentiment, treating those populations as potential terrorists. I think it handles it well without eliminating actual diversity. So here's a question, though, and I haven't seen The Gifted yet. 
does it actually have immigrant and Muslim characters? Are they dealing with oppression on those axes too, or is everything just distilled down to mutant? So far, that's been the main metaphor. We do have a number of people of color in the main cast, which I appreciate. But what it seems to be about is as we have this, you know, as white bread as you can get set of focal characters, learning that all of the shitty oppression in the world affects everybody and starting to kind of wake up to that. That works for me. I mean, like I said, only two episodes in. I think they seem to be handling it well. I really hope it continues in that direction. But so far, I'm on board. Wow, I gotta say, I am super not sold on it based on your description. It's also really exciting. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. I mean, I'll watch it because it's an X thing. But I gotta say, stories where the moral is privileged people learn to care about X issue because it affects them too, not because, you know, they learn to treat people who aren't like them as credible people who matter is that that's that's a frustrating frustrating moral well for right now it's also just getting started for me it kind of reminds me of they came for the communists and i said nothing because i wasn't a communist it seems to be taking things in that direction and i think it is also helps by the fact that most of the other main characters are like i said people of color they're it's not all just you know people who are incarnations of privilege hmm well i will i will Look forward to seeing it in any case. The New Mutants trailer, though. Man, speaking of interesting things, and also speaking of things that have have some issues along racial representation lines. So I am intrigued by the New Mutants trailer. I am curious as to how accurately it reflects the movie. It feels like the kind of trailer that you cut together using fairly early footage to come up with a thing that's going to look appealing and or are going to look appealing to fans of a specific genre. So I have no idea how accurately it reflects the feel of the actual movie. The special effects in it and the 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 like intensely intensely trope jar horror are a little bit ridiculous. Like how many things have we seen faces coming through walls in? Quite a few. It's true. All of them. Every single thing ever. So many things that it gets continually satirized, but that said, I think a big strength of the X franchise, the X movie franchise, has been its willingness. Actually, you know, the X franchise in general across media has been the willingness to play with genre. And I'm interested in seeing where that's going to go. And as for New Mutants being horror, I was really iffy on that at first. And the trailer certainly doesn't help. I think I agree with you, Jay, that they're really going for a let's make a horror trailer kind of trailer. Yeah, it is a very generic horror trailer. Whether the movie it reflects is likewise generic, we don't know. I do know that the director mentioned that he's planning on having this be a trilogy of New Mutants movies, all different kinds of horror, and that he is basing it mm. all off of Bill Sienkiewicz's run on the title. And Bill Sienkiewicz's run was pretty horror-tacular, especially the Demon Bear saga, which is what this first movie is explicitly about. I mean, you see Mirage as the focal character within that trailer. I mean, is what's going on her powers coming through uh, uncontrolled or the Demon Bear entering reality? I don't know. I think this could work really, really well. And the interviews I've read with the director imply that he knows New Mutants extremely well. Like, he's he's done his homework, and he loves those characters. So I'm optimistic. It's a strange direction to take these characters, and especially revising their origin story so that they're all, like, in some crazy facility instead of being just in a school where they're students. That's the part I'm most skeptical about. But so far, I... I think I'm into it, and I really, really hope it's good because the New Mutants, they're my favorite. That's always been my favorite X-Book. I am withholding judgment for the time being. Legit. 
I am. Oh, I am very. I, I'm intrigued by by the two, the dual aged Ilianas and the fact that she's got a Lockheed plushie. <laughs> that was pretty great. Yeah, that was intriguing. So we are a totally listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with on-air thanks from a variety of fictional characters and or concepts. So, angry Claremontian narrator, take it away. It's just a few hours a day, right, Devin McCullen? Can't miss your favorite shows, can you, Darklight Luna? You can stop any time, as soon as you've caught up on this season and maybe checked out a few tie-ins. Oh, and you don't want to miss the news, and by then, well, you might as well just keep watching. It'll tell you what to wear, what to want, who the good guys and bad guys are. Heck, soon you won't even need to think for yourselves. And um, well, we're taking a, a sharp left here and then turning the mic over to, I believe, Sexy Dracula, from whom we have not heard in a while. Jason Crookshank, do you mean to tell me that the breathless passion of Magneto... The flamboyant sensuality of Sinister, and the smooth seduction of Dracula himself, have been replaced by Nazis. Villainy is an art. One cannot simply engage in self-centered cruelty and expect respect and admiration. One must finesse one's foes. One must entice them with the forbidden appeal of the wicked, with the unthinkable desire for the unconscionable. Tom Banton understands. After all, he taught Dracula most of his finest techniques. Come, Jason. Let us show the world how good evil can feel. That's very specifically like Forum for Moderator Dracula from Curse of the Mutants, isn't it? <laughs> you know. With that, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes of our show come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for additional content, visual companions to every episode, along with much more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Lockheed explains Excalibur. And Doctor Doom gets his limbo on. Mm -hmm.